Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my co-host, McGill. Feeling a bit uh, low energy, as I understand it. I've been a bit sick. Uh, McGill's just feeling low energy. I don't yeah, know, it's uh, going to be like... A subdued episode. It's going to be the chill episode. Well, you get him in while he can, because, uh, you know, if you got the sniffles, it's not good for a podcast. I've already listened to some of these podcasts, and I'm like, oh, got myself sniffing. Can't have that. Uh, It is the 20th of October, 2020. Uh, You won't be listening to this near a Hollywood, uh, Halloween, a Hollywood, a Hollywood Halloween, a Halloween time. (laughs) At all. This will come out like after Halloween, good time. But, uh, you know, for us, it's kind of in the Halloween time. Yeah, Halloween's and, creeping up. Uh, I wish I had a Halloween adventure to uh, to take you on. But alas, I do not. Well, I think things are actually, I was looking at it, and I think our recording schedule, this is all going to be in the past for the listener, but I think uh, we're going to end up such that um, that crazy mind flare adventure with the map made of skulls. Oh, perfect! Um, that that should be landing on our like nearest to Halloween episode. So the listeners will have already heard that and had a spooky ass time with it. But uh, nonetheless, I brought some some uh, spooky things just to in the spirit. It, it won't necessarily be Halloween, but. Uh, you know, I got I brought some spooky things. I'll say that much. Well, do what you want to do you want to kick it off with the the spooky content? Yeah, I guess I better. I I my my main content is not really the spooky content. It's more what I brought for the tavern. Ah, uh, I see. But we'll see what happens with the with the main content. Um with the main content, I got a session 34 and Operation Silent Host. Uh, and also, I wanted to mention, you've got Chapter 4 Omega Boys. That's uh, I recently did Operation Omega Rising, so now we're looking at from Omega Rising to the Omega Boys. The Omega Bus is coming, and everybody's jumping. Oh my god, I didn't even think of that. Uh, <laughs> Nobody has since the 90s. Uh, I don't know about that, but... Um, Wait, is, has there been like a Venga Boys revival that I'm unaware of? <sighs> this is a weird tangent, but there's an episode of Cool Games Inc. where they create uh, some sort of insane game that like it, it, it becomes the sort of thing. One of their ideas where the game idea is like so abrasive that you would like pay not to play it. And so... It's a game where like the penalty is just that that song starts playing louder and louder and louder. <laughs> um, there's a whole like YouTube video for the clip where they talk about it and everything. It's funny because I think that the game they are trying to make that episode like like they they come down to two contenders for what game they want to make, and one of them has a game that they are genuinely very proud of the idea for and one of them comes up with a terrible idea that just keeps getting worse and worse and they actively make uh 
horrible to play by including this weird uh, Venga party bus mechanic to it. But then they bring in a guest host and make him choose which game he wants, and he chooses the terrible one. So <laughs> You're right. That was a weird tangent. But weird tangents are what Compare and Campaign is all about. I guess it's a, it's an important facet of it. Uh, anyways, um, yeah, I can I can jump into mine right away because I remember where we left off with yours. Uh, Omega Boys and all. But uh, in the meantime with me, well, as you may recall, in the previous uh, operation, Mpox's Finest, they uh, had been tracking down... So back in Operation Omega Rising, they had... Uh, cracked down on these smugglers who had been aiding the Nightside Eclipse, and they discovered that they'd been smuggling robot parts, and they tracked down some of these shipments to a sort of rail system that uh, eventually led them back to a subterranean factory in the Goblin Town area. And uh, that's where we're picking it up, is uh, them descending into this subterranean factory underground, uh, having just descended into the tunnels fighting uh, vampire and mummy lord alike. Um, one thing I want to just touch on before getting into this operation is uh, something that I guess had become an important item or I had introduced as an item already for the MPOC. Um, so basically, the item is trioptics. Uh uh, if you ever listen to the podcast Neo Scum, they call them Sam Fisher goggles, uh, or sometimes accidentally they call them Sam Shepard goggles. Sam Shepard goggles, <laughs> an American playwright. That I, I mean, I just gotta give a shout out to this other tangent because I think it's one of the funniest things in the world. Is so Sam Shepard is this famous American playwright and, and actor. Sam F- He's been in some movies. Right, and and Sam Fisher is the hero of the Splinter Cell video game series, uh, who is known for his three green lens, uh, you know, optical headset. And that's what I'm talking about when I say trioptics. Like, that's what I'm trying to get across. But in the cyberpunk, the the Shadowrun uh, podcast, Neo Scum, they often talk about these special ops guys that have Sam Fisher, uh, like optical headsets on. But then at some point, some of the players started accidentally saying Sam Shepard and like, didn't catch it. And then in one episode, one of the players who did pick up on it says, yeah, I just want to stop everything. You guys have been saying Sam Shepard goggles. And I looked that up. He's not like you're, you're talking about Sam Fisher, the Tom Clancy, like spy guy, not the American playwright. And one of the other players said, you know, I looked that up too, but I just thought, man, this guy must write kick-ass plays that have cool, like night vision (laughs) goggles in them, (laughs) which is the funniest idea in the world to me is like, there would be a playwright who is known for his badass plays in which people wear cool night vision headgear. Yeah, specifically for the goggles. <laughs> it's these like Sam Shepard goggles. He uses them every play. It's funny because, like, to me, that is actually it, it gives me such a specific idea 
for like a, a community theater play that is basically taking one of those scenes from Call of Duty where they're all stacked up on a door and then when they kick the door in, it goes into slow motion. Only the play is just the moment before they kick in the door and they're just talking to each other for like an hour. <laughs> That's actually a great idea for like a single setting play. I thought you were going to say, though, like an, a community theater production that is this like intense play with, you know, filled with war and pyrotechnics. And then I realized that they did that in the Wes Anderson movie Rushmore. And the character who puts it on is named Max Fisher. So there we go. It all comes full Man, circle. That's that's actually a pretty wild circle to have drawn. I did not see that coming. Um, but yeah, so try optics. I had introduced trioptics. Yeah, exactly. I had introduced trioptics as um, an item in the MPOC armory that, like, it was something that I knew I wanted to introduce pretty early on when I was introducing firearms and stuff because it's just, like, the kind of thing that really helps to add that level of tone to my sort of, like, you know, high-tech, or not high-tech, but, like, you know, magic items, uh, like special ops, Dungeons and Dragons team, you know, to give, if you give them cool special three lens goggles, uh, it helps to give them that like elite super spy feel just a little bit easier. And but yours are like D&D kind of versions of these goggles, right? Yeah. I'm so envisioning the the supernatural vision goggles from hellboy 2 that kind of have that same look right the ones they use for the troll market man yeah. that's one of my favorite movies of all time but um you know it's funny the other day uh i think my mom saw something about shawshank redemption and she was like is there a greater movie in the world than shawshank redemption and i was like hellboy 2 <laughs> i got some laughs but i was serious but anyways, movie. <laughs> you know, so that would be a lengthy debate to get into. I think there are positives to one. both. But uh, no, and actually, like, I, I think of them as being basically like the Sam Fisher goggles. Like, like, I don't actually think of them as being sort of uh, aesthetically steampunky or, or fantasy. Like, they look high tech, but they're function is more fantasy based so what i want to talk about just going into this operation is how trioptics work worked when i introduced them to the mpoc is that um so basically you've got the three lenses and you can sort of like uh spin them so that you can alternate between three different sets of like two lens combos um, and so the three different sets are, there was one that was night vision. Uh, there was one which I think was, um, or right. It was effectively like the spyglass, which is, uh, as it exists in Dungeons and Dragons fifth edition is just like a very expensive, uh, item in the adventuring gear. It's like, a thousand gold or something for like a spyglass, which is basically just like a telescope. Um, but so to avoid having to deal with those, I incorporated 
both night vision and the spy glass function into these trioptics. And then I also, uh, to fit in with the sort of uh, theme of the MPOC and their war with the nightside eclipse, um, I made the third setting something called necroscope, which was basically uh, a vision that would like detect undead through walls to a certain extent. It would basically like if there was an undead ten feet up to ten feet behind a door or behind a wall, you would be able to detect them. And I was actually uh, like, I know I'm I'm mentioning this a bit after the fact uh, when they came into play because these the necroscope in particular was used a lot in the dungeon crawling back in the deathlands in that town of south haven when they were clearing out the factories because they would like move through the corridors and check rooms and be like okay we've got at least like one white in this room so let's take it down this way and whatnot and that would enable them to actually do that sort of like breach and clear scenario that i was uh describing earlier um and it is also worth mentioning, uh, I'm not quite at the point where I get the inspiration for this yet, but um, the trioptics that I d just described, the uh, night vision spyglass necroscope combo, is actually, that was what I originally had the trioptics be, and then... Um, as of the next campaign in this series, I actually introduced like the Trioptics Mark II, uh, which are basically I changed what the three optical effects were and uh, to something that has gone on to be like the standard. Uh, so basically the necroscope thing, uh, I eventually phased out in favor of a more useful uh, goggle apparatus but um yeah th this is all just like i did want to set that up just before we go into this uh subterranean factory situation just because like the characters would have definitely been using them it's something that like save them the trouble of having to use a torch if they don't have dark vision for example or like give their position away with uh fire or light and so Sorry, are these goggles magically powered, or do they have a power source that needs replenishment? Uh, I would say out of those two magically powered, but like, I don't know, kind of like, like I don't track um, their batteries or anything for those things. I would think of them as like, yeah, probably magical in nature, but like um, with a still with the kind of like technical technological look like um i don't think i i like i say i didn't skin them to be like particularly fantasy looking i wanted them to have like an actual kind of like special ops swat gear kind of vibe to them uh but at the same time i didn't like i wasn't going to keep track of like the characters like goggle batteries or anything like that um it was just a way of like giving them sort of a cool goggle set that would uh, make them feel like badass secret agents. Um, That's, so, you, know, you know what that sounds like to me as well? Like, if I were to add those into my campaign, uh, much like the etherscope radios of Minds and Metal and Wheels, uh, that would be the quick way to get around 
the issue of some of the characters having night vision and others not having night vision because that That's always exactly ends up it. happening in, in my campaigns where it's like the one human in the party needs a torch everybody else can just walk into the dark room yeah exactly this way nobody had to worry about torches or anything like that it was just like okay cool we've got night vision goggles um so uh descending into the underground factory this was uh so so they're moving through this uh subterranean factory location and primarily what i'm just having is like they come into these corridors or rooms where they run into like a group of goons and then they fight those goons and uh you know maybe there's some crates lying around and they can search through the crates but of course like the real clue that they're looking for is never going to be in like you know one of the crates near the beginning of the of the factory it's going to be in like the last crate that they look where like you know that's where they find the hook for the next mission but in the meantime uh i did have like basically they're going through this factory and there's all these like sort of uh you know industrial like um like production lines and whatnot and they see that there's like mechanical limbs and boxes of robot parts and whatnot storage containers uh barrels of fuel that sort of thing and so they know that there's like some sort of big operation going on here and they're just fighting their way through along the way uh they're checking the crates and like though they're not finding clues i am like uh sprinkling in just like decent magic items for them here and there like uh boots of elven kind brooch of shielding um just uh you know occasionally they would uh after a fight be like hey we've got like a stack of boxes here let's break through them and like they'd find like a bunch of robot parts and stuff but then they'd also find like oh they've they've got a magic item here and so you so, know Tom. pretty to ask you about like the meta picture of this from the dm's perspective this all seems to me like you are building up to something really big right they've happened upon these production lines uh, and like it seems like the the enemy is building up to some major challenge and at the same time you're tricking out your party am i right are we moving towards like some big event i mean the thing is i don't want to hype it up too much because i'm not sure i like i i was setting this up but i don't think i did know what i was building up to i knew that like i don't know i i guess i know where this like sort of ramping up leads to but it wasn't necessarily like 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 when you phrase it that way it makes it sound like what i am setting up here with the robot parts and everything is like part of the big climax of the campaign which or at really, least the climax of the act yeah okay so i'd say that much at least i i would definitely say that much it's just that like at this late stage in the campaign um I think it is worth noting that, like, it, and I'm definitely going to cover it when we get to it. It's like when we get to the last act, it's like, 
I don't know if I'd really... I, I think I just got there and I was like, well, this is the last act. And it doesn't really have that good sense of like, you know, the arc has been building here. I think it was just like, this happened to be the last adventure that the Empok, that Empok's finest ended up going on uh, in the campaign. And so like, I don't want to set it up as if there is going to be some like big narrative payoff at the end of the campaign that I've been working towards. I think like I was still winging it to such an extent that basically the end was just something I came to and I was like, well, and then that's all folks uh, until next time. Um, and you know, to possibly to the campaign's detriment. Um, but that's all like sort of, a topic for that time also on the topic of like tricking out the party with gear i think that like like the it's worth noting that like they were probably never more tricked out than they were just before they got captured by the nightside eclipse in the deathlands like that point at which like that was the last point at which they had their crazy magic items that i had like made up before i knew what the guidelines for magic items were. And so like they were so powerful from their items at that point that it felt almost like after that point, any amount of magic items was still going to be like below that power level. So when you say like they, I'm tricking them out, I don't think that was my intention so much as like, I just always wanted to have, magic items around for them to potentially pick up and use um and like what's interesting is that at this point like when i mentioned like they're going through crates and sometimes they're finding uh magic items and stuff i think that compared to earlier in the campaign they were being a lot less thorough about searching for these magic items and stuff um like in the dungeon crawls that I have spoken about previously, I'd mentioned how they'd like they had rinsed those dungeon crawls. Like they had done everything they could to do every encounter and get every possible benefit that they could. But I think at this point they felt like they the magic items they had provided such a powerful baseline for them, and they were aware that they were not going to get any like truly broken items like the ones I'd given them before again. And so these magic items became certainly like, especially when I mentioned these, the, the ones that I'm mentioning, like a uh, brooch of shielding boots of elven kind, like these are things that will be useful to them in specific uh, circumstances. But it's like the situation with the Empok Armory, where at some point they stockpile so many different magic items, it becomes not like, how do I put every one of the magic items I picked up so far to use? It's like, okay, we've got all these magic items to choose from. What do we think will benefit us the most for this operation that's coming up? Like this mission that's ahead of us, uh, which items do we think will like really come in handy? Uh Part, so of, like, part of the reason I asked know, I, that as well is because that's what I would do. I would absolutely like simultaneously set up 
some big event that's coming down the pike for the characters and start giving them lots of cool gear in anticipation of it. So, um, in terms of the, like, uh, the meat of this, uh, operation and like the, the encounters that I was mentioning in the combats, one thing is that because I had established this as being like a secret underground factory, I was like, Oh, this is a good time. Um, you know, cause I was always looking for ways to have good, moderate challenge level, like goons for the characters at this level to fight. Like they were basically at level 17. They've got, they're decked out with magic items. And so they're fighting their way through a factory of like goons. And I had set basically a baseline at this point. Like I could tell looking through my notes that I'd very much settled on like, um, the berserker NPC monster class as like sort of the, the baseline. It's like, the main thing that berserkers get is reckless attack, which is the ability to give themselves advantage on an attack, but then all attacks against them subsequently uh, get advantage as well. So it's like you get a better chance to hit or crit, but then everybody else has a better chance to hit or crit you in turn. It's a it's a like common barbarian move as well. But this was good for making like just like decent not like super high challenge rating but like tough enough to be a threat as like sort of grunts and then have them in a group like basically make them a threat without making them so beefy that like you know like i say i want the characters to be like fighting through these corridors and 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 like sort of like superheroes beating up these gangs of goons and it's not going to work if like each goon has so much health that they just like get into a fight with one goon at a time, each corridor, like, you know, so, so like, I don't want them to be fighting like a single file lineup of big bad guys. I want them to be like, sort of in that, like, like I've said, the sort of like arcade brawler mode of fighting. So, uh, berserkers was one way of like, I could easily say like, okay, you see a bunch of orc berserkers and a dwarf berserker and they, they fly at you in a rage with weapons as you enter this part of the factory. Similarly, I also uh, had the old classic minotaur skeletons, uh, still not obsolete at this uh, level. Um, and I think that's worth mentioning is like the minotaur skeletons, that's something that's like challenge rating two or something like that and even at like level 17 they are like a decent thing to put in the character's way in terms of like yeah you gotta smash your way through this guy in addition uh because it was underground factory i felt that this was a good time to uh spice things up by bringing in drow ninjas because i had talked previously i'd had them fight uh the drow loyal to the Nightside Eclipse of House Aishir. And so I figured for this uh, subterranean factory operation, we'd have uh, some more Nightside Eclipse drow allies to fight that would also, like, you know, we've got these big goons, like these berserkers and these uh, minotaur skeletons, but then, like, a drow mage shows up in a cloak, and uh, all of a sudden the drow ninja comes down, and they're doing crazy, like, shadow stepping and, and fireballs and everything. Um, and on a similar note, 
uh, I think this was the first time that I introduced uh, demons as an enemy. I decided that with the Empok teaming up or, or like running a, a sort of alliance on the side with Mephisto uh, going back to the second act where they were working in, uh, they were operating in hell. Um, I figured that like as a counterpoint to that, uh, since the Empok was working with devils, the Nightside Eclipse would then try to like make some allies among demons who are, uh, you know, the uh, natural enemy of devils in Dungeons and Dragons. And so this just allowed me like there's a there's a very popular uh, big monster demon in Dungeons and Dragons, the Barlgura. It's like a big, big ape, big ape demon. And uh, so alongside these drow ninjas and berserkers and minotaur skeletons, the Nightside Eclipse had also summoned some big ape demons to have big fights with the characters. Um, and uh, so in addition to what I was mentioning about, like, so they were fighting through these sort of storage areas, these like factory floors with big crates, um, and then the corridors between them. It was also, at one point, I had them, like, fight down a, a stairwell to a lower level, but then the lower level had, like, sort of, uh, there was, like, an opening from the upper level down to the lower level, kind of like, um, if you imagine, like, a prison block, you know, like, like, someone on the upper level can, like, throw something down to the lower level, and so when they fought their way down to the lower level, I had a few sequences where instead of having traps that the characters would have to like potentially disarm and get around, instead I had some of the Nightside Eclipse on the upper level uh, grab some of the crates from the factory floor and try and throw them down on them while they were on the lower level. So while they're fighting, they're having crates thrown at them, and then some of the crates are smashing open and they have items in them. Some of them are smashing open and they're just full of junk or scrap metal and whatnot. And uh, they finally fight through all this. They fight through the crates. They fight through the drow ninjas and the demons and the berserkers and the minotaur skeletons. And uh, just in the last area, there's a... There's a goblin assassin that's got poisoned, uh, like, claw weapons, and he's got, like, an eye patch. He's like, ah, and he, he tries to sneak up behind them, get some sneak attack, basically like a rogue enemy. But then they are also fought, faced with a dead bot. The culmination of this uh, robotics project is they fight uh, a Nightside Eclipse robot minion that was actually my take on the death knight which is something you had asked about uh in yeah. previous episodes you'd always been kind of wondering when i was going to roll up with that death knight and i was always saying like eh, it's it's kind of too high challenge rating at, at this point and whatnot and so now you know they finally fought vampires mummy lords demons drow everything else now i finally make them fight a death knight as a boss but it's no ordinary death knight it is a dead bot, and it was basically a death knight, but um, he's a robot. That seems like it might be harder. It's got construct traits, so what? It's immune to crits, right? 
Oh, I wouldn't do anything like that to him. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. You know, I, I just made them fight a death knight, but, you know, it was themed, it was skinned as a as a robot. And uh, really, that was just uh, just the beginning for... Because this is only partway through. Like, So they managed to fight their way through this factory, fight this robot. Of course, once they defeat the robot, that's when they find the critical clues that will tell them where these robots are headed. And in turn, uh, where the Nightside Eclipse are holding the Goblin Princess Remy. So, um, oh man, we're meantime, finally going to save Remy. Yeah, I, basically, in the meantime, uh, the players, you know, having fought through the factory and defeated the robot, they uh, managed to shut down the factory's Virus 33 production uh like generators and whatnot so basically at the very least they're able to stop the like uh biological attack that is being mounted against goblin town however uh now it is up to them to find the kidnapped goblin princess and free her once and for all and uh you know if they're if they've only just met their first nightside eclipse robot there's certainly more to come before they rescue the princess. I was kind of wondering if you were going to do like an Attack of the Clones style thing where they wind up on a conveyor belt that's assembling robots and they have to fight robots while also dodging the machinery. I mean, I guess that's kind of what it felt like when they were having the crates thrown down at them. It's a good encounter, you know? Give Attack of the Clones all the shit you want, but that makes for a pretty good RPG encounter. Thing that I always think about is uh, the Attack of the Clones musical theme is like for some reason always sticks in my head. Wow, I don't think I could even hum it unless you're talking about da 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 da. da. Nope, it's the specific Attack of the Clones one. It's like used for like shitty romance scenes and. Uh, oh, I think bring, I know the one you mean now. Sprawling- <laughs> Desert shots of uh, clone troopers fighting robots. <laughs> it's like, I do know that one. Like, that's classic Star Wars vibes. And, like, man. You know, I'll, I'll also say this is a shout out to, like, my. To, to like, um, a track that I love to use as, like, background music for when I'm running role-playing games, I used to use it for combat music all the time, is, uh, you know, across Star Wars properties, video games, uh, what have you, like, shows, The Mandalorian and stuff, you have tons of different um, pieces of music, usually where various composers have done various spins on existing star wars like musical motifs and themes right like you know you you hear all sorts of songs in a star wars game but you're almost always going to be able to say like oh this is a version of like da 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 or like you know one of the songs from the from the movies you know like there's that one from Return of the Jedi that's like dun 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 
dun, dun, dun. and you hear versions of that in video games all the time. What's crazy is in the video game Shadows of the Empire, uh, in the classic level where you uh, are racing on the speeder bikes through the canyons, that level has like, as far as I can tell, a completely unique Star Wars track that totally fits in with the score. And I think it's just like, it blows me away every time. It's it's a perfect, like, it's got this like frantic kind of goblin energy to it. It's great. Shout out to uh, obscure Star Wars video game songs. Obscure Star Wars video games. Do you know, uh, man, they they had a a Star Wars Episode One spinoff game that was like like a sort of like a zoo tycoon type knockoff simulator. But the idea was that you were repopulating the ecosystem of Naboo's moon with the help of the Gungans. (laughs) All this stuff, man, people don't even know about. The lore goes deep. Is all that lore now wiped out, though? Oh man, I don't know. There were these like adorable little creatures that were like kind of like flat toads. They were called gullipuds. They were kind of they kind of looked like pancake creatures. They were adorable. Or they they kind of looked like tardigrades now that I think of it. Like um but you know, back back then I wouldn't have known what those were. Hmm. But uh you know, I'd, I'd like to think that those are still in the canon somewhere. So, Omega Boys. Omega so, boys. Mega Boys. So, Mega Boys. So, Mega Boys. The Mega Boys are coming, and everybody's jumping. We've already covered this. <laughs> uh, bo- boom, 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 boom. They want you in their room. Uh, See, now I... Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> Nope, 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 nope. That's a step too far on this podcast. All right, all right. So where we left off, uh, Doc and Critter had been captured by the Omegas, but their fate was sort of left unknown. Uh, while Beulah and Rosa and the nerds, the trio of LARPing nerds, managed to get some medicine from the medical facility and headed back to the greenhouse to administer it to Sadie, who had been uh, attacked by a carnivorous plant and evidently poisoned somehow. And so um, I really liked watching uh, Cater, who played Critter, and Steve, who played Doc. I really liked watching them sort of squirm, waiting to find out what had happened to their characters. So I didn't start with their characters. I started back in the greenhouse and did some interactions there. the characters administered the medicine to Sadie, stabilized her a bit, but her condition wasn't totally improving. And they realized, of course, that Doc and Critter hadn't returned and they were trying to think of what they were going to do. And while they were discussing their plans, like 
you know, where, what should we go? Should we go after them? Should we try and see if we could, one of the, one of the things mentioned that they ultimately end up doing is go up to the roof of the greenhouse and see if they can get a better view of what happened and like maybe spot doc and critter from up there. And while they're discussing this, suddenly the do- a back door to the greenhouse that they hadn't really seen because there are so many like plants and vines or overgrown on the inside, it opens up and, uh, this woman comes through, she's pretty young and she's like, she's got, you know, dirt on her face, the, the outfit of a wasteland scavenger. And they immediately like draw their weapons and point them at her. And she goes like, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, you know, who are you guys? What are you doing here? And uh, they find out that this is the gardener. This is the person taking care of the greenhouse. She introduces herself uh, as Layla and they talk to her and they get some more information about the situation. She explains that she basically lives in the greenhouse and the carnivorous plants are like, you know, her her pets. And she's devastated to see that they've been killed by the party and the Omegas. This is the first time that they really like get a name for the par- for the party to refer to Uh they leave her alone as long as she also grows a bunch of drugs for them. And uh, so she's sort of like a neutral party where she's she just has like. Uh, she is a she doesn't like the Omegas, but they leave her alone as long as she fulfills the her promise to them of giving them, you know, weed and stuff. At this point, she would also notice Kenny's body and be surprised to find a corpse there. Um Oh no, he he sorry, you're right. He didn't die in the greenhouse. He died in the Rat King. So she wouldn't have I mean, noticed that. I think in fairness, he I, I was trying to think of how he was just gonna suddenly be alive again, because he's gotta suddenly come alive again every time every episode. He's I figure there. we just don't mention it. <laughs> he, I figure he's just there, yeah. He like, just he pushes just, he pushes through the bushes and he's smoking a large dube. And he's probably uh you know, he he's probably trying to get in good with this new lady because uh, she's got all the drugs. <laughs> hey, I'm fine. Surprise. Hey, uh, is your name Ivy? <laughs> uh, no, I wasn't hey, quite that baby. cutesy anyway. Hey, baby. <laughs> um, so uh, the players explain the situation. Two of their friends were taken by the Omegas and uh, Layla says, well, if they've been taken by the Omegas, they're either being taken back to the back to Omega House, which is where the Omegas uh, make their headquarters, or they're being taken to the arena, which is inside ah. a gymnasium in one of the athletics buildings. Which is suspended over a giant cauldron. Uh, thankfully not. Um, and so Beulah and Rosa... Uh, and Layla also shows them a ladder up to the roof. And so Beulah and Rosa climb up to the roof. And from up there, uh, they can, you know, they can sort of get a, a better view of the campus. And they can see, uh, they can see a pickup truck, like a ramshackle pickup truck. And in the back are seated Doc and Critter um, and they're chained up and they have blindfolds tied over their eyes and they're being driven across campus. So they can they get a sense of where they're being taken. And it looks like they're being taken towards the athletics buildings. So they go like, OK, 
you know, we, we have to make our way over there. And like, that means they're being taken to this arena that Layla is referring to. We have to get over there and we have to set them free before they get thrown in this arena and made to fight who knows what, assuming it's a, a fight. They all just assume it's a fight. It's a fight. Um, and so at this point, Beulah and Rosa are like, all right, we have to make our way over there, but we really need like a map of the campus if we're going to mount any sort of escape. And they ask Layla, like, where can we find this? And she says, the closest building you could probably find them in are the stacks of the library, which is like two buildings down on the campus from the greenhouse. And so Beulah and Rosa round up the nerds and they're like, we're going to the library. We're going to see if we can find, uh, you know, a map of the campus there. And maybe while we're there, we can also find like a map of the surrounding area, something that might be able to lead us to passage. Let's go. Um, meanwhile, Critter and Doc, like I, I roll, I have them role play this situation where they can't see where they're going. They're in the back of a vehicle. The, there are these like rowdy, Omegas around them sort of, you know, whooping and hollering like the war boys from Mad Max Fury Road. And uh, they are brought to an athletics building and their their blindfolds are taken off and they're like shoved onto their feet and shoved inside. And I, I have this description where they're walking through the athletics building, which is in pretty good shape. And uh, they pass by locker rooms and they can hear like rowdy omegas inside. They catch a glimpse through one, you know, because locker rooms never have like the full doors. They just have that sort of like mini corridor leading into them. And so they manage to catch a, gr a glimpse inside, seeing that uh, some of the omega boys are taking showers and like there's water, there's uh, a water supply here. And while it's brown, it's still like running water. And they notice this guy taking a shower, one of the Omegas, and he's this huge hulking dude. And he's like standing naked under the water, but he's still wearing this like red metal mask in the shape of a skull. Gee, I wonder who they're going to be fighting. Um, and they also note that a few of the lockers are hanging open and they can see like guns and makeshift armor inside them. And uh, they... They're pushed through, like they're led through the athletics building. And I wanted to kind of pull a fast one here by making it so that they weren't going directly to the arena. In fact, they are going to Omega House first, but they're being led through the athletics building to get there. So my, my plan here is to basically get Beulah and Rosa to wade into this, this situation where they're going to be surrounded by Omegas, but... They do it unnecessarily. It's because of a mistake. They think that their friends are in there when they aren't. I'm going to turn the tables a little bit. Um, so they emerge from the opposite side of the athletics building and head towards a, cl a cluster of buildings near the north of the campus. And at this point, Critter and Doc realize that they are on Fraternity Row. And the only frat house with any Greek letters left intact is, of course, the biggest house, this three-story ah. building, and what Greek letter is over the door, Tom? It's Omega. It's Omega. So the Omegas are like post-apocalyptic frat boys. Um, there's an Omega punk just inside the front doors, and he's taking weapons from everyone who enter, and he hangs them in a locker. All the Omegas are issued 
Glock 9 millimeters I had. And, but when you enter your Omega house, you have to surrender your weaponry because there is only one Omega in Omega house, and that is their leader. Um, so Critter and Doc are, are led there, and uh, Critter decides that he's going to try and weasel his way out of this. So they're asked for their weapons, and Critter goes, Critter like elbows Doc, and he goes like, yeah, give up your weapon, moron. Like, start, you know, he's insulting him. And the other Omegas are like, what's going on here? And Critter says, I caught this guy snooping around the medical facility, and he tries to pull it off like he is a recently recruited Omega that these guys just haven't met yet. And he doesn't fully succeed on his uh, his bluff check, but like, so they don't like 100% believe he's an Omega, but he succeeds enough that they go like, oh, okay, so this guy might be on our side. Anyway, once inside Omega House, the restraints on Doc and Critter's hands are taken off because they are just surrounded and the Omega Boys are convinced that like there's nothing they can do. They're being led into the lion's den. Um, they're led inside through this creaky house and down the stairs into the basement. And I, I went into the description here about how like the carpet squishes under your boots. The air smells like sour beer and cigarettes. Uh, the basement room is this high ceiling man cave. There are taxidermized animal heads on the walls, but they're all like rotted away. They're moth eaten sports banners. One wall has a big, it has a bar with a, a still behind it. And then at the far end of the room has this riser like a stage where like once upon a time bands might have played there. But now there's this high-backed, important-looking chair on it. There are a half dozen electric guitars just scattered around it in stands or just lying on the floor. Uh, nobody's sitting in the chair, but next to the chair is this gawky-looking Omega, Omega Punk. And he stands to attention, and he says, uh, Behold the Omega, brother to us all, the end of all, the one true Omega, the Mega-O, the one, the final. Um, which I took inspiration from Road Warrior, uh, the Ayatollah of Rock and Rolla, Lord Humongous. I always loved... Lord Humongous. Yeah, I always loved that he has, like, his crier who comes out and introduces him with all sorts of cool titles. And so, the leader... It's funny because it's also reminded me of, uh, that movie Doomsday. Oh, man, I love that. they come out to find young cannibals. Mm -hmm. I remember you love that scene. Boy, I mean, I, yeah, <laughs> you know how much I love Doomsday. I have sung its praises in the past. I don't know if I ever have on the podcast. I probably referenced it, though. Um, but yeah, so, you know, here he is, the one, the only, the one true Omega. And he comes out and I, I went for the Mad Max look again. Um I, uh, what's his name? I can't remember his name, but he's like one of the main... Uh, he's one of the main villains from the road warrior, the guy, the, the second in command, he's got shoulder pads and a mohawk and like a butt flap. And, uh, he's played by this Australian actor. Um, there will be a picture on our WordPress and he's just sort of like the look that I gave the Omega, the alpha Omega, if you will. And he strides out and he like slumps down into his chair he takes off his shoulder pads that are decorated with feathers and he's wearing this mess shirt underneath 
and uh, he puts on a pair of party sunglasses where the the frames around the eyes are shaped like the Omega symbol. And he picks up a blue guitar and he starts just plinking away at this out of tune instrument. His bodyguards sit in nearby recliners that have stuffing bursting out of them. And, uh, you know, people start bringing out the busting out some drinks from behind the bar and everybody's just kind of ignoring Doc and Critter at this point. So they're like... This reminds me of uh, Rolly in that movie Suicide Club. Oh, yeah. Yeah, kind of like that, actually. But, I, you know, it's 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 funny. I, I was almost expecting you to say, um, this sounds a lot like there's a, like a little side encounter in Fallout 4 that is kind of designed like this, where it's like a school... And you go into the basement and you find that like the leader has like a whole throne area set up. But the leader's thing is that he found the old uh, mascot costume for the school's sports mascot. (laughs) And so he has this like half torn away like giant bear head that he wears. I've never actually played Fallout 4. That's pretty cool. I'm going to have to look. And then then also there's like a whole plot line about how like... His thing was that he kept wild dogs around, but then one of them gets rabies and bites him, and so he's actually deteriorating, and his his cult doesn't know what to do. Oh, wild! That's a that's another good setup. Video games they really do provide a lot of good setups for for role playing games. It's almost like I will say the sad thing is that like I think that an issue with fallout four is that it's always got like they they put the idea in but not the work like you know it kind of just despite all this it kind of just feels like another fight with a bunch of raiders and like you know he kind of he's supposed to have like a like a challenge that he issues when you like originally go to fight him but it always just kind of glitches out so that seems like he's just talking to no one (laughs) (laughs) Damn it, Bethesda. Oh, dear. Anyway, so the the lead Omega, the Alpha Omega, is playing his guitar. And it's just sort of like I, I, I leave that hanging in the air until Critter speaks up and he goes, Hey, boss, I saw. And one of the bodyguards just steps over and smacks Critter across the face and goes, Shut up. And the Alpha Omega goes, Damn it. I lost my place. And he starts over playing the song he was trying to play again. And so I just leave them there while they are being forced to listen to this guy, like plink his way through some tune that they don't recognize. And then I hop over to Beulah and Rosa and the the trio of nerds, Thomas, David and Gavin. And they are they've made their way into the library and they're searching through the, the mildew smelling stacks for maps maps of the campus anything that might be useful i have them like do some search checks and start looking around um i all their search checks failed but i wasn't gonna let them go away empty-handed so i have one of the nerds goes like oh hey look at this and uh, the nerd gavin has found the cartography section of the library and he's climbing up a shelf to get some maps from one of the higher shelves. But as he does it, uh, you've seen the the Brendan Fraser movie, The Mummy, right? Of course. There's that sequence near the beginning. Love that second one. 
where Rachel, Rachel Weiss's character winds up precariously balanced on a ladder in the middle of a library and she falls over and the shelves fall down in like a big domino effect. Same thing happens here. So Gavin climbs up near the top of the shelf and he goes like, hey, I found some maps. And then suddenly the, the shelf tips forward into the next shelf, which falls over toppling shelf after shelf after shelf down the length of the library. Books go flying with every shelf that collapses, trickles of plaster rain down from the, sil uh, the ceiling, billowing clouds of dust kick into the air. The noise is really deafening um, and the dust gets everywhere. So it, I counted it like fog, like low visibility. Everybody has to make those scavenger survival checks to see if anything collapses. Uh, I believe there were some minor injuries, but no major collapses. But the main thing is that it alerts a small patrol of Omegas that is nearby. And so while the characters are like picking themselves up out of the rubble, they do find several maps and uh, like scattered campus maps that have fallen on the ground. And as they're picking those up, the doors to the library open and two Omegas come in and they're well armed, like better armed than the heroes are. And so I run an encounter here where it's it's sort of like an encounter where uh, it's it, the players are playing it that it's better for them to like hide and sneak away than to actually try and fight these guys, because while they might not be outmatched, they are certainly outgunned. And so this was an encounter. Um, I don't know. Do you ever do you ever run encounters that are more like something out of like the video game thief? as opposed to just full-on combat, those, like, sneaking around shelves kind of encounters? Yeah, I'm actually running a game right at the moment uh, that is actually kind of, like, Hitman-inspired. Yeah, Hitman is the, a good touch point for this, too. I, I've given the characters basically, like, an area, like a, a general area map with, like, different zones. Like, okay, so you've got this building here, you've got this building here... And then they basically have to like figure out how they're gonna commit an assassination and get away with it. The party managed to sneak away without being caught. That was the main thing, is they're just they sneak away unnoticed. And the two Omega thugs are like, something weird is going on here. So we should probably go and alert the others. And Beulah and Rosa and the nerds seize this opportunity to follow these guys at a distance and follow them back to their headquarters. Maybe they'll be able to find Doc and Critter along the way. Back in Omega House, the, uh, the Alpha Omega is finished plinking away on his guitar and all the other Omega boys like applaud and cheer as soon as he's finished, even though it's a completely unremarkable song and he has no amplifier. If you've ever played an electric guitar without an amp, like it really is just sort of plinky plinky. Um, so they all cheer and the Alpha Omega stands up and he takes a bow and he goes like, so you boys want to be part of the Omegas, huh? And Doc He's like, well, I never said that. And Critter like elbows him and goes like, yeah, we're here to become a part of the Omegas. We hear that you guys are the biggest badasses of the wastes. And uh, the Alpha Omega was like, well, now, isn't that interesting? All right. There's only one way to join the Omegas. 
you gotta suffer the gauntlet. And all the other Omegas go like, oh, oh no. I really played up these guys as being like meathead frat boys. And so the Alpha Omega's like, drinks all around, boys. Everybody fills their cups and then they shove uh, Doc and Curter to their feet and like start shoving them back outside, back out the way they came. Um, back into the athletics building and finally into a gymnasium where there is an arena set up. Pieces of chain link fence with barbed wire along the top are set up like, like, a, like a cage match in the middle of the gym. And as they come in, inside the, uh, the arena is that big hulking dude with the death mask on. And he's brandishing a big blade that really I just like I stole from Warhammer. It's those like swords, but with like a saw, a saw blade on them. Ah, chain swords. Chain swords. Exactly. Um, so he, shout out to Chainsaw Warrior. Remember? Heck yeah. Um, and so he's wielding a chain sword. And he is fighting one of the red slods that they encountered in the sewers. And you watch as this guy just, like, takes this thing apart. He's obviously a very high-level character. He cuts off its head. The crowd goes wild. And he, like, you know, holds his fists up in the air and goes, ah. He's obviously sort of like a Hulk-type character. Uh, maybe a berserker. I didn't give him berserker stats. But that, that kind of, like barbarian low int and then high constitution high strength style npc and so uh critter and doc are shoved forward and uh they think for a second that they are gonna have to fight this guy but he just passes by them they're shoved into the arena as some other omegas like pull the corpse of the slot out of the way and so they're standing in there and they are each thrown a chain sword, and then again, they're left to wait. And we cut back to Beulah and Rosa and the nerds, and they're following the Omega Punks towards the athletics building at a distance, and they see another uh, like open back pickup truck pull up, and in the back of this one is another slot, and uh, it's got some Omegas. They have those... Uh, they're used for animal control, like the long pole with the loop of cord at the end. Two of them are like wrangling the slot down out of the truck and towards the entrance of the athletics building. Beulah at this point has a gun that she found in the medical center. And so she decides that she's going to start some chaos. She shoots one of the two Omega boys who are uh, holding this thing and she gets him, he falls over dead, and the slod breaks loose. And suddenly there's all sorts of chaos going on. Um, inside the gymnasium, inside the arena, there's like, you know, chaos erupts because an Omega boy like bursts in and he goes like, one of them got free. And then half the Omegas that are there run outside to try and get the situation under control. Um, and uh, Doc and Critter are left still inside the arena that they can't really get out of, but about half of the people watching them are now gone. And uh, uh, at this point, I'm just going through my notes because we're getting to the point in my notes where, uh, where I'm just like turning it over to the players. And uh, so at this point, 
Beulah, Rosa, and the nerds decide that they are going to sneak into the athletics building to see if they can find uh, Doc and Critter and use the commotion to their advantage. And uh, so what they do is they walk around like one of the outer walls until they find uh, like an air intake. They pull the grate off of that and not all of them can fit in, but Rosa can fit in. And so they so Beulah goes like, okay, Rosa, you know, go in, see, see what you can find out, like do some reconnaissance, report back to us and also see if you can find like a side entrance that you can prop open. And so Rosa climbs through and that's where I that's where I drew this one to a close was on the cusp of this big escape attempt. But we've met the Omegas, we've met the Alpha Omega, and we sort of we're we're in much more familiar post-apocalyptic story territory now where you've got you've got a big gang and uh, the heroes are captured and they're going to be made to fight in a uh, escape from New York style arena. We're going escape from New York fight as opposed to escape from L.A. basketball match. <laughs> ah. <laughs> but yeah, so that's that's where it left off. All right, man. Into the blood dome with you. Heck Yeah. The blood. I should have just called it the reason, Blood Dome. Well, I keep thinking of uh, there's this um, there's this classic old concept art. Speaking of Fallout, uh, I'll try and find this picture to show you, but um, and this will be, of course, in our show notes. But uh, basically, there's some concept art for the ghoul. Uh, in Fallout from like the original Fallout game that was uh, labeled Blood Man. And I keep I keep expecting Blood Man to show up. Hey, he's pretty great. I like Blood Man. I love Blood Man. Blood Man's great. <laughs> great, great character, Blood Man. You didn't draw this, dude, did you? No, no, this is like from concept art for the original Fallout game. Wow, it looks kind of like your style. Oh, thank you very much. I I wish I had drawn Blood Man. I wish I could take credit for that. That'd be amazing. But uh yeah, maybe uh Fallout will get their act together one day and go back to Blood Man where it's all at. Uh Yeah, I want the Blood Man spin-off game. Yeah, yeah, Fallout Blood Man. Tavern time. It's tavern time. It is tavern time. Ready to go down to the tavern time? Yeah, I got a... My, my tavern contribution here is pretty short. It's it's mostly going to be directing people to our WordPress to see it. So, uh, okay. you mind if I go first? I think uh, you'll get a kick out of this one. This should be fine. All right, I'm just going to send you... It's, uh, it's a map. It's a map that I found. Here we go. Ooh, ah, I like this. It is the map of Clichéa. These once great and original lands, filled with hope and interesting new ideas, have fallen to the Dark Lord. From his dark throne, he sends forth hordes of evil creatures to blight the land. But there is a small hope. The Chosen One must rise up and defeat the Dark Lord if the land, now known as Clichéa, is to be restored to its former glory. 
Um, I found this. I think it's hilarious because, I mean, this is the most cliched D&D map. And I can say that with confidence because it's like a map that I have drawn. I'm pretty sure I've drawn cliche style maps multiple times. Um, it's a lot like what the map of Greyhawk looks like. And it's not even that dissimilar from the map of Eberron. You've got, and again, I encourage our listeners to just uh, go to our WordPress and take a look at this for the full effect. But for, uh, for the listeners, I'm just going to read out the different parts of this map. And I'll describe some of them here and there. But you know this map. This is, this is every fantasy map. You've got Gondar, the land that's just right. It's next to the Great River and the River Bridge. But to the south of Gondar are the Badlands, the land that's too sandy. And then on the coast, the southernmost coast, Land's End. There's a, there's a settlement called Old Town. And then to the north of that is Liongard, the city of protagonists. There's Rajashi to the, south, uh, the southwest. It's the exotic city next to a bandit camp, uh, bandit camp and the peninsula that reaches in sort of a spiral called the Reach, where you can also find the Dragon Tail Islands and the Dragon's Lair. Above Gondar is... I have a friend who's, I have a friend who's D&D ongoing campaign series is literally called Reach. <laughs> See, I mean, so here, let's let's hop across the let's hop across Storm Bay with its constant maelstrom to Gothmore, the land that's too dark, where you find the dark forest, the Blackwater Lake, the Shadow Mountains. See, Drail isn't anything like this because the bad lions are bordering Gothmore and it's all one con. <laughs> Um, and then a few of the really obvious, like Lord of the Rings, uh, jokes in this, there is Mount Death and a dark tower. And, you know, when I read Mount Death, I was like, hey, isn't it interesting that big properties like Lord of the Rings or like Star Wars, somehow they can get away with the most uninspired cliche names for things. If I called my evil volcano, Mount Doom, like in Lord of the Rings, people would laugh at me. But the fires of Mount Doom actually sounds kind of cool, right? Like when Christopher Lee says it anyway. Likewise, in Star Wars, like, the Death Star. <laughs> I mean, I got the Deathlands. Yeah, well, okay. Well, yeah, are they, are they a land that's too sandy? No, they're more like Gotham. Oh, there's a land that's too, too dark. dark. <laughs> That's what I was saying about earlier is yep. uh, my 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 settings got the Badlands next to the Gothmore. Uh, there's and then there's a jungle. Well, uh, no jungle here. There, there, no, there isn't. But there is the uh, there is Elvenholm, the land that's too perfect with Yggdrasil, the big tree, and Lithlin Lithlinlore, <laughs> the Elvish settlement, Star Lake. There's also dark dark forest, Kingwood forest. Yep. Uh, I like there's the little like land bridge that connects the two sides of the continent called the pass on a previous episode. I, I can't remember if it was a name that you had come up with or something, but uh, we were talking about like naming places and this one forge hold the city of dwarves. 
that was one of those names that stuck out to me where I was like, like I would come up with that, but it is such a cliche. The the mountains of mist, like the mist, misty mountains, Kazakrad, the largest mountain, Asgard. Of course, there's a lot of uh, drawing from Norse mythology here, which is another classic uh, trope of fantasy maps. Even even uh, my dwarven settlements uh, are simpler than like you know Iron Forge or Forge Hold or whatever. Mine is just called Austin and Arden. See, that's uh, that is at least more creative, though. It's not. I feel. I think it's just in line with like everything in Drail is supposed to be like as simple as possible, as if like this is the first iteration. Like you know, in real life, there's always the sense that like countless generation, like like everything has been known and thus named by like countless generations of people before us and so like everything has had like a long sort of lineage of their their name and the words we use but with drail i think everything i just wanted to make sound like it had just been named like basic so like austin arton it's like yeah we just got some basic syllables here and like we haven't used them yet so why not <laughs> See, that is more creative than this, at least. I gotta say. Drail is a lot more original than cliche Um Oh, I don't know about that, but okay. I mean, you could have just named your uh, your dwarven settlement, you know, uh, Iron Gate. Yeah. Mount Home. In a nod to Game of Thrones, there is, of, co- of course, a massive wall... With a breach through the it, breach. called the breach. Uh, that's to the north of the Great Plain, and uh, the Northern Shire village of the unlikely hero. Um, I think that covers most of the map of Clichéa, but I thought this was really funny, and in part it was really funny because, like, I was looking at it and I'm like, damn, I've drawn this map myself. Like, this is this is a lot like the maps that I draw for different areas of Eberron when I was running an Eperon campaign. And uh, it also brought to mind something that bugged me about the map of Greyhawk, like the world map of Greyhawk that you can get. Man, I, I don't know if this bothers you, but it always bugs me when you can, like, obviously, obviously see where somebody has pulled their inspiration from blatantly. I'm thinking in particular of the Greyhawk city of Radagast City. Come on, Radagast City. <sighs> yeah, I don't know. I, I the thing is, it, that, it's like, like you know, you, time... you pass through Air, uh, you pass through Radagast City into the Aragorn Mountains, where the Legolas Hills lead into the Frodo Valley. Like, uh. but Radagast City. I, use your inspiration wisely you know there's nothing wrong like i just finished talking about drawing all this inspiration from mad max the road warrior um use it wisely i could have just instead of calling them the omegas i could have you know it could have been lord humongous and his war boys that to me that's hacky do just put in a little more effort make it your own here's another weird tangent though Speaking of Radagast the Brown, um, whenever I think of Radagast, I am reminded of uh, 
an article I read a while back when the Hobbit movies came out where somebody went to Denny's and tried every item on the Hobbit menu that Denny's had put out. And uh, the Radagast themed meal item was uh, it was a dessert. It was like these raspberry flavored donuts that you dip in frosting and the guy who wrote the article uh, said, I want to be clear here. Denny's has named a menu item after a character who has shit on his face. <laughs> yep. Uh, man. I remember <laughs> I remember that that Hobbit Denny's stuff. I wish I got in on that. Damn. Make me wish I had some Denny's, some Hobbit-themed breakfast foods. Yeah, I could go for a second breakfast. Uh, so shall I jump into my spooky one? Yeah, what do you got? I have brought, um, so Vampire the Masquerade. Going back to before the one that's more my jam, which is Requiem. Going back to the original Vampire the Masquerade. You had all these vampire clans. How many vampire clans do you think you can name, McGill? Uh, zero. Okay, you know, <laughs> you got. So you got your um, your scary monstery ones like the Nosferatu. I was, you know, what I was about to say, like are Nosferatu, one of the clans. This is the thing: is I played so little Vampire the Masquerade that I I was like doubting myself because that was one I was about to say. You should probably just uh, get on Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines, though it's uh, not the most stable thing. I think people are modding it to overhaul it every day. But oh uh, wait, there's one. Uh, there's, there's a, a there's a clan out. called the the Bruja, right? Hey, yeah, there you go. That's one. That's another one. And it's interesting. So um, the the one that I used to play, Vampire the Requiem, they scaled it down to five core clans which then could have any number of like unique bloodlines. And so in that one, Bruja was actually a bloodline of Gangrel, which Gangrel is like the, the bestial, like, um, you know, the one that can like turn into animals and stuff. Um, is there, and, is Ventress, is that one of them? Ventress? Close. It's Ventru. Ventru. Uh, the, the five in Vampire the Requiem are, uh nosferatu ventru deva which are like the sexy ones and they're unique to requiem uh maquette which are the shadowy ones and they are also unique to uh to requiem and then and then gangrel uh and it's interesting because nosferatu ventru and gangrel are all clans in the original as well but, um, like the Deva and Mechat and, and even Venture, like, like there are major clans from the original game, uh, Masquerade that were sort of demoted to, or, or like were included in the newer version of the game, but, um, as bloodlines. So like Malkavians are very, very popular from the original and they're the ones where the curse of va vampirism for them is that they're inherently insane. And so, uh, Malkavians were reintroduced in Vampire the Requiem as a bloodline for the Ventru, actually, where basically their lust for power would drive them insane over time. Um, 
But there's like basically there's all this to say that like in the original Vampire the Masquerade set, you know, with I mentioned how with Vampire the Requiem, there's five of them. With Vampire the Re Masquerade, there was like I think at least twelve of them. And generally one of the big things, so like when you play the video game I mentioned, uh Vampire the Masquerade's Bloodlines, you only get the option to choose one of the what are known as the Camarilla clans. So in Vampire the Masquerade, there are these larger factions that are at war, specifically the Camarilla and the Sabot. And the Sabot are like the bad guy vampires, and the Camarilla are like the arguably, like the protagonist vampires. Let's not say good guy vampires, but like, you know, that's what, it's similar to like, we know that you can play monstrous races in Dungeons & Dragons, but typically in a Dungeons & Dragons video game, you only have the option of, like, the base ones that are in the player's handbook. Like, that's basically, if you're looking for how to think of, like, what the Camarilla clans are like in Vampire the Masquerade, is it's like, here are the ones that are generally going to be the player. However, you... Like, just like when I play Dungeons & Dragons, the minute I start playing, I know that I want to be a goblin. Whether or not that option is on the, like, base table or not. Similarly, when you first play Vampire the Masquerade, you don't, you know, you may see, like, oh, most players are Camarilla. But that won't blind you to the fact that you get to see all the options there are. Which, um, I say all this to establish that basically when I first encountered Vampire the Masquerade, like, some of them really stand out. Like, the Malkavians, who are crazy, the Nosferatu, but to me, the one that stands out the most is the Samitsi. The Samitsi Sounds delicious. are, like... They're like, like, like I described the Nosferatu as the scary monstrous vampire, but these guys are like, like, um, like monstrous to the point of like being like aliens. Like they don't even look human anymore. They look like crazy, like spawn toys or something. Um, the Samitsi, uh, I've got a little rundown here. If someone were to call a Samitsi inhuman and sadistic, the Samitsi would probably commend them for their perspicacity and then demonstrate that their mortal definition of sadism was laughably inadequate. The Samitsi have left the human condition behind gladly and now focus on transcending the limitations of their vampiric state. At a casual glance or brief conversation, a Samitsi appears to be one of the more pleasant vampires. Polite, intelligent, and inquisitive, they seem a stark contrast to the howling Sabbat mobs or even the apparently more humane Bruja or Nosferatu. However, upon closer inspection, it becomes clear that this is merely a mask hiding something alien and monstrous. The Samitsi clan weakness dictates that whenever a Samitsi sleeps, they must surround themselves with at least two handfuls of earth from a place important to them as a mortal. Failure to meet this requirement basically makes them weaker every 24 hours um, until they get a full rest uh, amid the earth that they require. If you look up uh, pictures of these guys, 
you will typically see some like really weird alien looking dudes um they the so their whole thing is basically their main power is this ability called vicissitude which is basically known as flesh crafting and so the thing about the Zamitsi is that they are 100% clearly supposed to be like a villain race. They are a vampire clan that is designed for your cool badass boss. This dude um, has a rib cage on his head. Man, that's just like the beginning. Like uh i've i've got other pictures here but like yeah i did a google um, image search and yeah like there's the one that you meet in the video game that i was mentioning vampire the masquerade bloodlines is like just full-on looks like an alien like he doesn't look anything like the other uh vampires and so vicissitude um is widely known as their art of flesh and bone shaping one of the most horrifying powers available to vampires, vicissitude, is the signature power of the Zamitsi and is almost unknown outside of the clan. With it, an experienced crafter can sculpt the flesh and bone of a subject, making them a creature of alien beauty or gnarling them into a deformed monstrosity. Zamitsi use vicissitude on themselves extensively, altering their appearances with the mood or changing their bodies to be as vile as their souls. Vicissitude is in some is, is similar in some respects to Protean, which is the one that lets you change into animals and stuff. It springs from a much darker source. Um, whereas Protean merely enables a vampire to emulate God's creatures, this twisted power allows the Zamitsi to defile and deform those creatures or him, her, him or herself for all manner of perverse ends. The most beautiful maiden or still noble stallion can, with but a need of the fingers or a flick of the wrist, be reduced to a hideous freak or a blob of deliquescent pus. The fiends have certainly used vicissitudes more grotesque side effects to cement their infamous reputation. Note that while this discipline permits horrible, powerful and horrific effects, the wielder must obtain skin-to-skin -skin contact and must often physically sculpt the desired result. This even applies to the use of the power on the oneself. Zamitsi skilled in vicissitude are often in inhumanly beautiful. Those less skilled are simply inhuman. Um, it goes through a bunch of things about them. They can basically use this ability, like... Basically, this ability lets them do things that a villain in a campaign would do. Um, they can, like, you know, I, I talked about ghouls in the past. They can basically turn their ghouls into, like, Cenobites, basically. Um, or they can make, like, a super ghoul, which is, like, a whole bunch of corpses all combined into one giant corpse monster uh, that it becomes, like, a war ghoul. Uh, just a rundown of these powers, though. Because I wanted to touch on some of their, their spookiest powers. So, uh, just going through the first five levels of vicissitude. At first, we have Malleable Village. A vampire with this power may alter their, their bodily parameters, height, build, voice, facial features, and skin tone, among other things. Such changes are cosmetic and minor in scope. So basically, like disguise self. Then you get Fleshcraft. Alter muscle, fat, 
and cartilage. Then you get bone craft. Now, I wanted to touch on bone craft. I remember when I was introduced to Vampire the Masquerade, um, they had examples of things you could do with these powers uh, in that rule book. And I remember reading when I first saw that role-playing game that one of the things you could do with this ability was make basically make an enemy's like an enemy vampire's rib cage like close in on itself so that the ribs rip into the enemy's heart like a clawed hand and that causes the vampire to lose some of their magic blood because it's like the heart is like your your blood store in vampire the masquerade um i'm hoping that all of this is building towards you saying that you went against the grain and you made a character uh uh what that's uh, a tzatziki uh yeah um Who's just like a really normal, nice, like the dude from the Big Lebowski, but he's at Tsumitsi. I mean, I, I don't think I ever really got to play one. I think it was always like, man, these guys are awesome. But it is clearly meant to be like a villain race. Like That would absolutely um, be my inclination is just to make the most chill, friendly. Nah, man, I'm not like those guys. I, I do like that it is part of their background that they are like very hospitable and very polite. Like they have they have basically like Dracula like rules of conduct. I was going to say where that if the... they like offer you safety, they mean it, um, but they are complete monsters. I was going to say that in spite of like a lot of the, you know, like you sent me this picture of this Sumitsi chick who's got like a tentacle arm. <laughs> or a scorpion or like tail a scorpion for an arm or tail yeah. for an arm in spite of things like that like the the one the image that keeps coming up similar to the other picture you showed me where it's like you know this like large headed uh elegantly dressed weird sort of alien vampire that look i i would wager a guess is very much inspired by uh old dracula from the bram stoke francis ford coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula, you know, where Gary Oldman is old and he's got that sort of heart-shaped hairdo and the long red flowing robes. I kind of feel like that must be where the inspiration is coming from. It's funny because they actually, um, at some point in the development of the game, they did establish, like, um, basically a split in the clan such that there was, uh, what do they call them? They're oh, old clan Samitsi. And old clan Samitsi are basically just Bram Stoker's Dracula, like top to bottom. Um it's just like the the Samitsi are like the thing is that you could say that about the Samitsi, except that they are also so clearly like boss monsters. Like, they are just designed to be like, and then they can use their blood to grow wings and a scorpion tail, and then they turn one of their arms into a sword. Like, I didn't even really get into... So we got Malleable Village, we got Fleshcraft, we got Bonecraft, then we got Horrid Form, Transform into the Warform Zulo. The transformation takes two turns to complete. So this is like literally you turn into like a killer monster, basically. You turn into like 
a demon one looking a, a demon looking monster with like horns and spurs and, and like um there's even like upgraded versions of this called like the Chiropteran Marauder and whatnot. Um But I also wanted to go through just like so then we've also got uh Blood Form, which is instantly transformed into a pool of sentient vitae, which is like magic vampire blood. Uh Inner mastery, alter internal processings of the body, even manipulating mental attributes or giving derangements. The body impolitic, infuse parts of your body with your will to allow them to be severed to do your bidding. Advanced powers, body arsenal, transform the bones in your body into weapons. Blood of acid, permanently make your vitae highly corrosive. Chiropteran Marauder, transform into a huge flying bat. Ecstatic Agony, change the pain of wounds into pleasure. Entrail Saraband, turn your bowels into writhing tendrils. Graft Life to Life, attach the limbs of one person to another without it becoming useless. <laughs> living Testudo, use a victim as a living weapon and shield. Plasmic Form, as blood form, except you can move and hold any shape as a pool. Skin trap. Peel off a layer of skin to use as a net. It sounds like something blood man would do. For real. Cocoon. Wrap yourself into an incredibly resilient shell. Flesh rot. Give a target a disease that eats away at their body. Impaler's fence. Cause a victim's spine to shoot up and down them. Kraken's Kiss. Transform your face into a tentacle that can drain blood. Transcend the flesh. Expel foreign substances from your body or move through solid objects. Liquify the mortal coil. Turn victim body parts into blood. Bobble. Turn into an object no smaller than half your size. Breath of the Dragon. Exhale a blast of flame. Will over form. Use vicissitude without one's hands over a distance. Sublimation of the larval flesh. Weave the flesh of a target into a cocoon to transform it into a new form. Oathbreaker. Transform your blood into a substance that can suborn foreign blood bonds for a limited period of time. Blood of the earth. Your blood becomes a viscous substance that burns when it is ex exposed to the air. Doppelganger, assume any shape. Earth's vast haven, dissolve your body into the earth. Perfect essence, control your vitae more efficiently. The last Dracul, assume a draconic form whose blood incinerates when it comes into contact with the air. And reform body, recreate your body after dying. I figure you must need the reform body after doing all the other things, right? I guess. <laughs> Peel off um, a layer of your skin and you're like, well, gotta reform my body I now. I love that the use for peel off a layer of your own skin is just to make a net. It's like, really? Or use rope. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, or get a net, you dingus. Um, <laughs> I also just wanted to say as a closing note that, um, you know, one thing with Vampire the Masquerade as it used to exist is that it... Um, it had this meta plot where, you know, over the course of the releases, it was always building towards the end of days. It was always saying like, oh, and, and these vampires, like there was always a little excerpt that was like, you know, for anything they introduced to the setting, how that played into 
Gehenna or like the end of days, like the big end of the vampire setting. And when they did do the transition from Vampire the Masquerade to Vampire the Requiem or or that World of Darkness transition to New World of Darkness, um, they did a big event where they released these like end of days books that offered uh, campaign ideas for like how the whole game of vampire and werewolf and everything would eventually end with the end of the world. And, uh, so one of the things that these books cover is sort of what happens to like the original founding vampires of each vampire clan. So of course, what happens to the founding Samitsi of the, of the Samitsi vampire clan? Well, Turns out that in the end of days, it's discovered that he's been living in the sewers under New York. But not just as a vampire. He turned himself into a pool of ooze that then turned into a type of vampiric fungus that then spread through this through the city sewers and then slowly started evolving into weird creatures and animals and then started infecting the people. And oh man... He's turned into the entire city of New York. Oh, my God. <laughs> One of them turns into a giant super monster. He's the vampire version of uh, the Transformer Metroplex. Yeah, kind of. Or like, uh, or the blob that ate everything, you know? Um, you know, it's like those weird uh, New Age guys with the mycelium. You ever hear about that? Oh, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He turned into the mycelium. Hey, I got something related to Vampire the Masquerade that I just thought of. Uh, I got a, a movie recommendation for you, Tom. And what movie is this? So I watched this, this movie last night, and it's bad, but it is highly entertaining. It's called Modern Vampires. And uh, as I was watching it, I was like, wait a minute. This is like somebody's vampire the masquerade campaign put to film and the i mean that's what underworld was well the thing that really tipped me off like something that is pretty specific to vampire the masquerade is the vampires capture a human and then like dope them up by injecting them with drug infused blood i was like this this feels very vampire to me um but the real reason you should watch it is uh, the, the plot is about there's a, a new vampire in L.A. who is posing as a prostitute to kill people. And like the vampire council doesn't like this and want her brought before them. And then concurrent with that is a plot line where Van Helsing, played by Rod Steiger, of all people, teams up with a gang of like, like, like gangsters. <laughs> to fight the vampires so it's van helsing and his team made up of time bomb soda pop little monster and trigger vampire in the hood <laughs> it's really funny <laughs> craig ferguson is in it as a vampire too figure that out so weird it should also be said that like it is such a vampire campaign is like one player just started playing and they decided they were going to be this killer prostitute vampire. And then like the DM was like, Oh, well the vampires in town don't like you poaching on their territory. And it's like, 
that's how they got the conflict started and then we're off to the races. Very much so. And I for the final bit of weirdness to do with modern vampires is that it is uh, as I was watching it, I thought to myself, like, man, this score sounds like a knockoff of like Danny Elfman music from a Tim Burton music, uh, Tim Burton movie. Turns out the movie Modern Vampires is written, directed and scored by Richard Elfman, Danny Elfman's brother. What? That's wild. (laughs) I could not have seen that coming. (laughs) All right. I was like, this sounds like knockoff Danny. Oh, it is knockoff Danny Elfman. Speaking of uh, vampires, did you uh, think about what you would play in Bloodshot Panopticon? Oh, shoot. I forgot. I'm going to have to keep thinking on that. Let's let's that's okay. Let's come back to it. In the meantime, uh, this has been another episode of Compare and Campaign, episode 35, in fact, uh, session 34. Therefore, episode 35 has been the 20th of October 2020. It's been a relatively long one, but uh, yeah, I'm your host, Tom Lando, and you can get in touch with me on Twitter at Narnog, N-A-R underscore N-O-G. And if you want to get in touch with us in general, me and McGill, you can check us out on Facebook, Comparing Campaign on Facebook. And uh, we've mentioned a few times our supplemental materials, which you can find on ComparingCampaign.wordpress.com. Check out the map of Clichea, compare it to the map of Drail in our first post. Uh, check out pictures of the Samitsi, pictures of Bloodman, pictures of uh, screenshots from Fallout 4. And that basketball scene from Escape from L.A. Oh yeah, it's definitely going to be there. Should have just done Chaos Dunk. <laughs> Not me. Level up your character.